0: Today's scripture is from Philippians chapter one, verses 12 through 18. I want you to know brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, And in that I rejoice. This is the living word of God for us today. Some of my favorite movies are the kinds of movies where, you know, in, in the middle, everything's just a mess and all the pieces are all tangled up and you're just like, oh my goodness, I don't know how there's going to be any redemptive uh, um, anything coming out of this storyline. And then there's this one moment, this twist in the plot at the end where something is revealed and, and I call it that no way moment. No way, I did not see that coming. And now the whole story makes sense. Now everything locks into place or it causes you to like rethink everything you've been watching for the last two hours. In light of this new information, there are a, a couple of movie directors that have made a living doing this. You know, they've, they've made it into a real art form. Uh, Christopher Nolan, I watched a, a movie by him recently that kind of had that element to it and I loved it. But the one that probably is most known for, known for it is M. Night Shyamalan. And some of you know his movies. The, maybe the most memorable one is The Sixth Sense. You're watching this movie all along, and then there's something revealed, I won't give it away, at the end, and you're just like, no way! And then you think back to the whole movie, and you're like, oh, now all this all makes sense. Now, as I, as I, I Googled him, honestly, I Googled him to make sure I was pronouncing his name right, uh, I found this picture. Now, look at the look on his face. I thought, there's the look of a man who's just dying to trick you. You know, he, that's the look of a guy that's thinking, I know what's coming and you don't know what's coming. And uh, about two years ago, I was talking about the sixth sense with a friend of mine who worships here, Jared. And Jared said, well, do you remember the movie Signs? And I said, is that that one with Mel Gibson and the, in the uh, alien, you know? And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I, didn't, I think I kind of skipped that one. <laughs> it was a little bit weird and I don't know. It wasn't my thing. And he goes, you need to go back and watch it because he was a former pastor and, you know, it's was a really interesting movie. And so I, Jody and I sat down and watched it. And sure enough, you know, you watch the whole movie and yeah, it's a little weird and creepy. <laughs> but then you get to the end and there's that moment again, that no way moment. And you're like, oh, that's why the kid has asthma his whole life. And that's why the, the mom, I, I probably shouldn't say too much, you know, her last words, you know, these kinds of things. And I was thinking about that movie and I was thinking about why I tend to like these kinds of movies. And and I think we all tend to sort of, to have this desire in us to have a moment in our lives where everything makes sense. And it's so much ingrained in our nature as human beings that we often just sort of grasp onto shallow things even. Like, oh, yeah, I mean, you've heard other people, like people that kind of tend to over-spiritualize everything. He's like, oh, that's why God did such and such, so that I would such and such and such and such, and then I would be here today. And sometimes I hear that, and the cynical part of me is like, I don't know that that's what really is going on. I just think that's your brain making connections. But I will say this. Human beings are hardwired to find meaning in things. So we're always longing, we're always searching. In fact, I might say it this way, one of the deepest desires of the human heart is to believe there's a greater plan where everything comes together and everything makes sense and the the, the pieces form into a coherent whole. This is exactly the hope of the gospel. this deep desire of the human heart will be fulfilled. Jesus Christ will finish the work he started and he will make all things new. The problem is when hard things come into our lives, we usually don't go there. We don't actually really lean on the gospel like we're gonna hear today. Paul leaned on the gospel. What we tend to do instead is we we tend to turn to pithy, shallow sentiment. We say things like, everything happens for a reason. You know, ding, a little ding on your teeth, ding. Behind every cloud, there's a silver lining. Or when God closes one door, he opens another. Now, I'm not saying that there's not some truth embedded in some of those things but often if we're honest we say these things we're just pretending to feel better we're just saying these things be like i ah, just going to say these things and there's no real core conviction in our heart when we say them usually there, there's there's no real deep theological underpinnings to say i believe and i will lay down my life for this truth If we're not careful, as I thought about this, we can be guilty of putting cheap clothing on the work of Jesus and sentimentalizing it to the place that it's robbed of its tangible transformative power. Behind every cloud, there's a silver lining. That's not the gospel. That's hallmark card theology. And so this is why we need Paul's words today. The the passage that I just read, as you notice, it begins with suffering. Paul says, what has happened to me? And then it ends with joy. He says, in this I rejoice. And in the middle is some deep gospel theology that had such a grip on Paul's heart that it changed the way he saw everything. And I want that for us. Now, in first hearing this text, you might have thought, oh, this is Paul just doing what Rob just talked about. He's just putting a nice spin on things. You know, here I am in prison, but don't worry, Philippians, it's not all bad. Some good things are happening, you know, positive spin, positive spin. It's deeper than that. When you dig deeply into this text, you'll see there's much more here. In fact, what Paul has in mind is grand, it's it's massive, and we need to hear it with fresh ears this morning because Paul's not turning to shallow sentiment. Paul is anchoring his identity to a reality that so far transcends his own situation that the dark twists and turns of his life can only lead him to joy. And I believe we're invited through this text into the same kind of joy. This passage is an invitation for us to see our circumstances with new eyes, to have that no way moment as we think about our own lives and our own stories. So let's dive in. We'll start with verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I'm pause right there for a minute. This is the main idea of this whole section. You know, Paul doesn't always do this, but in this particular case, he writes with like perfect, you know, middle school essay form. Thesis statement supporting points summary. It's exactly how this passage is gonna roll. So what's our thesis statement? Right here in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, let's put this uh, phrase, this, this part of the sentence into the context of the book as a whole. Paul is writing a letter to his friends who know he has gone through a big ordeal. He is writing them from prison. If you are hearing from someone that you know has gone through a big ordeal, Maybe they've uh, lived through a natural disaster. Maybe they, they just are recovering from a heart attack. Maybe they've, they've had a tragedy in their family. There's an elephant in the room until they tell you how they are. Until they'll talk about what they've been through, it's just there. It, 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 so Paul, you know, he's written 11 verses so far in this letter and he hasn't said anything about him really, and how he is. And so this is the part where Paul's addressing the elephant in the room. Let me tell you. And and what he can say is this actually amazing, I want you to know what's happened to me, has been positive, has actually been good. How could this be? Let's start with why Paul got arrested. In the Roman Empire at this time, there were only certain religions that were allowed. You know, they, they were acceptable faiths and Judaism was one of them. So Jews could worship their God, you know, within certain confines, as long as they didn't revolt, they could worship their God, there was a degree of freedom. So this new splinter of Judaism Christianity which is how it was initially perceived started out and and it just seemed okay these are these are Jewish people that are proclaiming something new it's probably just a part of Judaism but then all the Jews were like no 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 this is not us this is something different these crazy Christians are dangerous and and the Jews would would actually say what these Christians are saying is Jesus is Lord Lord means king Now that was exactly right. That is the core conviction of Christianity. Jesus is Lord. In fact, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the word Christ is not Jesus' last name, is a title. So to say Jesus Christ is not just to identify a person, it is to make a statement The statement you're making is Jesus is Messiah. Christ is Greek for Messiah. Messiah is the king that's to come to rule the world. So these Christians were making a statement. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king in the Roman Empire to say anyone was king other than Caesar was treason. And so there was this period of time, this was early in the persecution days and probably the early 60s when Paul was writing this, the Rome was figuring out how seriously they should take this new movement. It was spreading like wildfire. So they, they addressed Paul, they arrested some of the other leaders, mostly to interrogate them, but also to slow down the spread of this new movement that might possibly be dangerous to the empire and so this is what had happened and you can imagine the surprise and delight in philippi when the recipients of this letter heard i want you to know what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel paul's saying my whole purpose of my missionary journeys that you've been supporting me on philippian christians is to advance the gospel and i know you've heard i've been in chains and that was meant to slow it down but it's actually had the opposite effect I like to think one of the benefits of going to Fellowship Bible church is every now and then you get to hear a good Chick-fil-A story <laughs> from my past life. So when people think of Chick-fil-A, they they usually think of the food, the people, the cows. So the, the cows came about in the mid-90s. So Chick-fil-A was working with an advertising agency in Dallas, Texas called the Richards Group, and they had an idea for a billboard. And it was all, that's all it was. It was just a single billboard idea and it had a cow up there, you know, 3D, big model of a cow, eat more chicken, misspelled. And, you know, the Chick-fil-A guys saw it and they're like, oh man, this is more than a billboard. And that's exactly how that happened. But it started out as a billboard. So they put a billboard up. People that saw it was, loved it. So they started putting a couple more billboards around. So 1996, this is before, like the country didn't know about this. They were only in maybe in four or five cities at this point in time, these billboards with the cows. In Chattanooga, The cow was stolen from the billboard. I don't know how they did that because like if you've seen these cows, it would take up half the stage. I mean, these cows are massive up there on the billboard, but the cow was stolen in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And you know, if you're a Chick-fil-A guy initially, you're like, this is terrible. You know how much those things cost? (laughs) And like just to eat more chicken sign with no cow makes no sense. Like how is the word getting out without the cow? And then a funny thing happened the newspapers started writing about it and the news shows started writing about it. And it it went, we'd say today, it went viral. Like it was all over the country. And and by the way, the cow was eventually returned. It was a group of teenagers that, that stole it, you know, and like put it away in their, some mom's basement somewhere. (laughs) And I just had this idea, this picture in my head of imagining that cow in the darkness of the basement (laughs) writing a letter to his fellow cows all over the country saying, I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. (laughs) And this is what has happened. What man intended for evil, God is using for good. And so Paul's going to go on here in verse 13 and he's going to explain exactly how it is advancing the gospel and he's going to begin with this little phrase, so that, which we might call a purpose clause, but I think in this case it's probably more of a result clause. So Paul's going to say, here's what's happened since I've been imprisoned. Number one, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Why would Paul's imprisonment become this thing that was known throughout the Imperial Guard? And why does that even matter? Well, you have to understand what the Imperial Guard was. The Imperial Guard was the, the, in the Greek it's the the Praetorius, the Praetorian Guard. You may have heard of the Praetorian Guard. It was this famous unit in the Roman military uh, that was assigned Uh, special duty these were like the seal team six of the roman uh, empire army and in particular they were the ones that would be responsible for the security detail of caesar himself his family members and all the top officials so in rome the way it worked for paul is he had a, a member of this top level security guard this this praetorian guard he had a member that chained to him 24 7 now they would take shifts You know, I don't know, six-hour shifts, 12-hour shifts, however much they could stand up here in the gospel, I guess. (laughs) Because you can imagine what Paul was doing with this this guy just chained right next to him. And then they kept cycling through. And Paul's like, here's another one. Well, these Praetorian guard guys, they'd go back into the palace. They'd say, you'll never believe who I was chained to today. (laughs) This crazy guy, he's not there for murdering. He's not there. He's there because he says some guy named Jesus is Lord. And Paul's saying, I don't care if they're mocking me or if they think I'm speaking truth, the gospel is going into the household of Caesar, <laughs> into the imperial guard. And you know, the, the Philippians would have been reigned. this like, you're kidding me. The imperial guard, the, the Praetorian guard is becoming known. The gospel's entering that place, the, the highest place of power in the whole world, you see. So that was result number one. Result number two, most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I thought about this. I don't know about you. If I was a teacher of the gospel in that time and I just heard that Paul was arrested, I don't know that it would make me more bold. Might make me more afraid. But the best is that I can describe what I think's going on here is like, you've seen the scene of the army in the foxhole, and they're being told to charge forward. You know, the commander is like, charge, and they're all afraid, and they won't do it. And then one brave soul grabs the flag and charges forward. Rah! Everybody else is inspired by that, and they run after him. Rah! And they take the enemy. I think this is what's happening. I think these other Christians... Or becoming inspired by Paul's example, and they're saying, "Listen, not only is Paul okay, ultimately he's joyful, and not only is 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 he okay, but the gospel is flourishing. Let's go. Maybe God's plan is for us to move forward, not backward." Now, in the next few verses, Paul describes a little twist in the storyline. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Okay, what is going on here? Because this is weird at least I think it is, I, I, I've, I've puzzled over this text, I've read a lot on this text, and, and here's what I can tell you, the best New Testament scholars in the world cannot figure it out. There's different theories, et cetera, but we just have to take this at face value. And, and, and here's how I would summarize. There were apparently some teachers and leaders in the early Christian movement who were jockeying for position and influence. And some of them were taking advantage of Paul's imprisonment to try to elevate themselves. This seems so out of place to us for good reason, but I think part of the reason it seems so out of place is we tend to idealize the early church. Guys, they were people just like us. You know, they had ambition, there they, they were rivals, they, they were afraid, there were all kinds of things going on in that church, just like is true for us today. The Spirit of God entrusts flawed people with the message of the gospel, And so Paul is able to bring it home and sort of transcend his own circumstance with this final idea. What then? So it's like, what do we make of this? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Can the Spirit of God use twisted motives? Can the Spirit of God use bad preaching? Can the Spirit of God use a flawed body like ours? Yes. And Paul's saying, keep the main thing the main thing. Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. That's worth celebrating. So I, I want you to dig into this for a minute. Okay, we, we've gotten to the end of the passage, but, but, but I want to I go further with you in this. Here Paul is, and his freedom's been taken away. His so-called friends and, and fellow Christian workers are kicking him while he's down, some of them. And all he can think about is the progress of the gospel. In fact, I want you to see something. Let's go ahead and mark the references to the gospel and Jesus in this section. Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, I know some of you weren't here for this, but but we're gonna mark the gospel every time we see that with a cross with a circle. So there we have in verse 12, gospel. And every time you see Christ, or Jesus Christ, or Jesus, we're gonna put a cross. And you know, you can follow along if you want. You obviously don't have to do this. So we have one in verse 12, the gospel. We have verse 13, Christ. Down in verse 15, you have Christ again. Verse 16, you have the gospel right there at the end of verse 16. Verse 17 is Christ in verse 18, Christ. Now, why do we do this? One, two, three, four Jesus's two Gospels. And this is a section that's meant to be about how Paul was doing. For Paul, how he was doing was inseparable from how the Gospel was doing. One of the commentators I read this week said it really well. He said, not that Paul does not feel personal injury or that he has relinquished all ambition, but in Christ, his ambition and desire have found a true and satisfying goal, a goal by which all pain and gain are redefined. Read that last part again. In Christ, his ambition and desire have found a true and satisfying goal, a goal by which all pain and gain are redefined. Do you have ambition? Not a bad thing. Do you have desire? We all do. What's the difference between you and Paul, me and Paul? For Paul in Christ, his ambition and desire had found a true and satisfying goal. This is where, if we're honest, we might, just start, we might start feeling some distance from Paul. If you're like me, you might be thinking right now, that's really great that Paul's life was for the gospel. I'm just trying to make it through the day. I don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm so happy to forfeit my life for the gospel. You might be thinking most days I'm just trying to get my work done or keep the peace at home or knock out a few of my thousand things on my to-do list. And so as I've thought about this this week, the last two weeks really, as I've been wrestling through this message, I, I've, how do I help us, like start with me, connect the dots between us and this giant in the faith? Can, can any of us really identify deeply with Paul? when he's saying this, like, despite what's happening to me, I have no freedom, my friends are kicking me while I'm down, my reputation's in the tank, but despite all that, I rejoice because the gospel's going forth. Here's the way I've been thinking about this. Paul seems to have exchanged his life in such a profound way that he's left me behind. If I'm real, courageously real here, one of our core values, I'm not sure if that's true for you but that kind of exchange, that, that kind of that profound give myself over to the gospel is mostly elusive for me. And so I thought, how can I help us identify with this man who, who, who is this giant, you know? And, and what are we to do with this text? Are we to say, good for Paul, and then just try to use his life as inspiration, are we to start feeling guilty that our passion for Jesus does not equal Paul's passion for Jesus? Might there be something else the spirit would want to speak to us this morning? So as I worked this out in my own heart, this thought occurred to me, perhaps the most remarkable thing was not Paul himself, but the way Paul understood the gospel. In other words, perhaps where where I should be driven to inspiration and and driven to to awe, in a sense, is is not the vessel. is not the man, but the message, the gospel itself. Track this with me for a minute. He was a human being, Paul was. Like, he had massive flaws. You get the idea that Paul was a hothead. You know, Paul was one of those guys that liked a good debate. Paul could step on people's shoes. Paul probably didn't apologize as much as he should have. I mean, this this is how Paul was wired, and God's using him but he's a deeply flawed human being. Now, for that kind of human being whose reputation is being tarnished, and he's lost his freedom to do the one thing that he loves doing, which is traveling from city to city starting churches, all this has been stripped away from him. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die, and, and, and yet he's saying, the fact that I've lost my freedom is of little consequence, and the fact that my reputation is being knocked down for the sake of others' ambition is of little consequence. The only thing that could drive him to say that is if he was enraptured by something far greater than himself. Either that or he's just putting on a show. I don't think the word of God is just a show. So I thought maybe it's this for Paul. Paul the good news about Jesus was the greatest possible thing imaginable. Is it for me? So here's what I think we do. We reduce this grand, amazing, universe-changing good news down into little sentimental, bite-sized things, it'll all be okay. There's a silver lining on the every other thing. Buck up. And I I know we're not doing this out of ill motives, but our tendency is to reduce the message of Jesus to just fit the, the Sunday parts of us, the religious parts of us, or maybe only have actual implication for the life to come. Someday, 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 it'll be okay. Perhaps Paul would say to us, if he were here this morning, Perhaps you'd say, if the gospel does not captivate your heart to the point of willingly desiring to wholly give your life to it, maybe you need to hear it again. And maybe I do. Maybe we all do. So let's hear it again this morning. At its core, the gospel is good news, which means it's an announcement. It's an announcement that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there is new possibility for the whole creation. To human beings separated from God, the gospel announces sin is atoned for and forgiveness freely given to all who believe. But that is just the beginning. To a world covered in the shadow of death, the gospel announces the light has come and darkness will not overcome it. To a world living in the iron grip of fear, the gospel announces the prince of peace has come to rescue and set free. To a world overrun with injustice and pain, the gospel announces the righteous ruler of creation has begun the work of setting things right. To a world living in disbelief and suspicion toward even the idea of God, the gospel announces that he is gentle and loving and can be trusted. The gospel is the news that all anxious worry and lingering doubt will be laid to rest. That everything that is upside down will be turned right side up. That those who have nothing will be given everything. The gospel announces that everything broken, banged up and busted will be redeemed, restored and renewed. Everything lost and grieved over will be found and rejoiced over. The gospel is the moment in the story that causes the whole creation to say, no way. It makes sense. Our pain is not wasted. The broken pieces fit into a beautiful, coherent whole. The gospel is the good news about Jesus that he came to do the work of his father in heaven and he will come again to complete it so that in the truest, deepest, most possible, tangible, profound way, he will make all things new. And so this morning I ask you as I ask myself, is that message worth trading your life for? And if it is worth trading your life for, is it also worth living your life for? And I'm not just talking about the grand events of your life or doing some remarkable things that people might remember for 2,000 years like Paul did. I'm talking about living your life in the minutiae. The the phone calls, the meetings, the emails, the eating, the cleaning, the parenting, the carpools, the errands. Because what is true on the grandest scale of the universe must also be true in every inch of our lives. And I think it's in the inch by inch battles of our daily lives where we are invited to trust Jesus the most. And so our invitation to joy this morning, as Lloyd and I have done throughout this series, we're gonna land on a slide at the end that calls out some application and I wanna put it on the screen and just read it to you. Here's our invitation to joy. This week, share with someone a story from your life that fits this thought. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And if you can't think of a story, start praying that you'll live one. This is not a shallow sentiment. This is a practice in learning to redefine your life according to something bigger than you. This is an invitation to joy. I'm not joking. And so I know it's weird to to have someone tell you this is what you need to do this week. And I'm not telling you this is what you need to do this week. I'm telling you here's an invitation. Here's an invitation to joy. And just like last week, you know, Lloyd said, hey, I, I want to ask is there anybody that, that wants to, to, to read or pray this prayer 30 days. I'm, by the way, I'm not going to ask you to stand up, okay? I'm not going to do that. Lloyd did that and it was great last week. I'm not going to ask you to stand up, but, but there is something to say. This may not be for everybody, but for those of you that want to lean in, for those of you that are thinking, I don't know where my story's gone. It's all twisted. I can't explain the, 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 the parts of my life that have brought me pain. Here's an opportunity for you. Would you pray that God would help you connect some dots? And and not just in the sentimental way, but in a way that would say, oh, I'm starting to see that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And if you don't have that, don't stretch it. Don't make it up. Just start praying. It's like, God, give me a story. I want to live this story. I want it to go from my head into all of me. And here's how... I want us to close. We'll sing a song in a minute, but before we do, I want you to see one of these stories. We have these stories in our body. And so there's a family in our body, the, the Bailey family, David and Katie, and some of you know them. They've been at fellowship for a really long time. You're, you're going to have a chance to hear their story of what has happened to them serving to advance the gospel. Let's take a look.